December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. So said President Franklin Roosevelt in his speech to Congress in asking for a declaration of war against Japan, citing the attack on Pearl Harbor in which over 2,000 Americans were killed. Framing the event as an unprovoked attack on American soil, FDR led the United States into its largest military conflict in history. What is less clear, however, is how much of the inner circle of the presidency, the War Cabinet, and the Intelligence Services, one, knew the attack was coming, and two, wanted it to occur, to spark the necessary public support for a full-scale war in both Europe and Asia. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been Welcome to the show, and I am now broadcasting for the very first time in a long time from the comfort of my own cabin, and I hope that this will be the dawn of a new era. So joining me is uh, Adam, Hans, and Hank. How are you guys doing? Good. Congratulations. I didn't know that. Uh, Thank you. They gave you satellite dishes. <laughs> that, ladies and gentlemen, is tablets. the satellite delay. <laughs> Sorry, Hans. Go ahead. <laughs> no, that's okay. You stepped over me already. Got an angry show for you tonight. Well, we're off yeah. to a great start. It's as though we're in a sort of a metaphorical cabin and the walls are closing in. Yeah, I'm in a bad mood. So Everyone's getting stir-crazy here. It's that latent period, and it's like after Christmas, but there's still snow on the ground. Spring isn't even really on the horizon yet. Tempers run high. Food runs low. Podcasts get uh, get low energy. Yeah. But not well, tonight. I the black eyes today and like ate shit on my way to the train. It's pretty bad. So that's, that's the energy for the show going tonight, folks. Bitter. Yeah. As cold as digging a grave in winter. Okay, guys. All right. Well, on that wonderful note, let me just thank. There are a few donations on Bitcoin. Uh, Nick, I don't know if you're checking the Patreon, so maybe other people have donated. So thank. I'm sure somebody's done that at some point. So thank you, of course. But I just checked the Bitcoin. That's my job here. Um, so there were three. Um, I won't read them all off, but you know, you know who you are. If you'd like a copy of a book, let us know. And uh, Nick, please take it away. Well, today I wanted to discuss a little bit about the United States entry into the Second World War. One piece of the eight of infamy, December the seventh, nineteen forty-one. And uh, I think it's somewhat topical, considering I saw that there was a film that they were going to be putting out out about midway and so it's going to be more the similar you know liberal imperial historiography 
And I mean, the first, I mean, most famously was the, uh, I believe it was Jerry, Jerry Bruckheimer film, Pearl Harbor, which really honestly had nothing to do with the politics and events of the time. And was it some kind of love story or something. I don't remember. That movie sucked. Yeah. Uh, a bit about the, the conventional story, which, I mean, all these years later, is still held up in academia for the reason that you can't really get a job in it. I mean, or mean a job in academia if you're publishing any serious revisionism about the Second European War. In the early days, right after the war, you actually had more work done from people who at that time were still, you know, held in esteem. You had the uh, works of, you know, Charles Beard, uh, Tansill, uh, Harry Elmer Barnes. Uh, there were a good number of them, though those all uh, did some damage to their own careers. Uh, American dissidents have long been suspicious of what took place there, and you had uh, Revelo P. Oliver was one of the early uh, revisionists of the time, and I think that it was something. I, I in going back and rereading, I, I first read Stennett's book back in high school. And it definitely made an impression on me. I was going back and revisiting the material, and I was just considering what exactly uh, the changing perspectives. I think that we've gotten to the point where American dissidents are far more cynical. I think that the idea that the United States government would lie and sacrifice our own people uh, for nefarious aims is taken as uh, just a matter of fact at this point. I think back then it was something that uh, few people who started to really consider that what we're dealing with is is treason and alien subversion. Uh, they they quickly like Revolope Oliver himself. They they got pushed way into outer darkness. And I mean, because you had this was the great blow to the American nationalist movement, to the America First movement. You had after the events of December seventh, nineteen forty one. You had Charles Lindbergh uh, basically folded, as well as. Uh, Colonel McCormick at the Chicago Tribune, and they both uh, turned around and supported the U.S. entry into the war in the Pacific. Charlesburg, he re-enlisted or attempted to re-enlist. Uh, his commission was officially resigned in 1939, and FDR uh, personally refused his readmittance into the into the Air Force, or I guess into the army. It was at the time the army. Uh, flying combat missions somehow or another uh, in the Pacific as an observer. But this was a major blow to the non-intervention movement. And I think when it's taught in conventional college settings, I, I think that that aspect of what was happening in America is underplayed. It's, it's always mentioned, uh, I guess, this, that the statistic that I think is 80-some percent of the American people opposed uh, entry into Europe. But I don't think that they're going to go into much detail as to how, to what stratum of the population, namely the people who were, who were influential in American society and were respected were at the forefront. So what are you guys' thoughts on the Jerry Bruckheimer film? <laughs> oh, that was an awful movie. I, I remember actually when it came out, there were people um, in my school of the, uh, the era, I won't say which grade I was in, but uh, that were just ranting and raving about how great it was. I mean, I guess you'd call that sort of a rave review. And um, 
you know, there were some people that were like kind of like staring at them during class because they're raising their hand, you know, like, like a historian. And it's like, yeah, you know, and this and this happened and the Japanese were really nasty and blah, blah, blah. And it, it just came up, I guess, during history class or something. And uh, a few of us were just shaking our heads. It's like, you know, you don't, you don't exactly learn history that well from Hollywood folks. Um, but yeah, it was, it was one of those movies too, that was using a lot of uh, computer generated imagery, which I thought really detracted from uh, some of the, the impact that I think it could have had just from a visual standpoint. But yeah, just in terms of the, uh, the actual movie itself, I did not enjoy it. I think it was a Ben Affleck affair and he's always kind of annoyed me. Um, but also one comment on what you were saying, Nick, about how the America Firsters were basically silenced at that point. I think that's that's very apropos for uh, many uh, many people in sort of modern eras uh, remembering at least 9/11 because 9/11. If you look at the Project for New American Century, their white paper, they've actually they they literally cited we need another Pearl Harbor event to galvanize the American public around the new American century effort of basically global uh, hegemony. And that effectively turned into what we saw with the war on terror. And arguably what was the linchpin in that was 9-11. And so I think today's discussion is going to be interesting because a lot of people focus on 9-11, but they don't focus on Pearl Harbor itself. There's a great article on war history online called The Endless Historical Errors Made in the Pearl Harbor Movie. And I'd actually bookmarked this a while back, um, but it has a lot of the technical errors in the film. There's a lot of mismatched uh, pieces of equipment and things like the cigarettes they're smoking weren't around then. The types of glasses they're wearing weren't around then. The cars were from the Korean War. Um, there's all kinds of endless sort of technical inaccuracies that are very, it's very lazy filmmaking. Um, but one of the biggest ones that it points out is that in the middle of the attack, there's a really pinnacle scene in the film where there's an attack on the hospital and it's as though it's portrayed as though the Japanese were intending to attack the hospital purposefully after driving a lot of people there, a lot of wounded there and a lot of hospital staff were killed. Um, when in reality that didn't happen, the Japanese did not intentionally attack the hospital. They only kill only one hospital staff member was actually killed. And that was when he was trying to cross from the hospital to the Navy yard and was outside, but they did not intentionally and repeatedly attack hospital staff or medical personnel. Um, that was not the intention of the attack. And it actually was much shorter than it's in the film. It's portrayed as this epic battle that goes on for, you know, a while when it was in reality a very very short raid that um was not nearly as like destructive as it's portrayed in the film either um, yeah the japanese so- fight the japanese fighters in reality were chased off pretty quick because of the anti-aircraft rounds that were being fired at them from the, the shoreline and because you know the the americans were able to activate a lot of uh, fighter squadrons pretty rapidly and they chased them out of there like it was not this slaughter and you know this uh, kind of carnage of civilians and medical professionals. It was uh, a very limited strike and was not very effective because the United States was able to rebuild that fleet very quickly and then very rapidly deploy it into the Pacific for combat with Japan. So none of the eight ships that were hit were were operational by the end of the war. Yeah, and they managed to sink zero carriers. Uh, all of them, you know, through 
happenstance. Yes, which were conveniently not at Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I mean, and so there's a lot of stuff in hindsight here, like because it's kind of assumed such a uh, a principal place. I mean, there there's like three battles that anyone can name if you just kind of have a median uh, public high school education. It's like okay, Gettysburg, uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, and then D Day, like, yeah, it's like, yeah, D Day, yeah, but like that kind of uh overstates the extent to which it was sort of a canonical uh event militarily, and it's really important when you look at these things, you don't look at it from the you know 1942 or even like. 2020 perspective you look at it from like the 1939 perspective and what a lot of people miss is people treat it like this ridiculous notion right now that it's like uh the uh the maybe or maybe not uh fake uh yamamoto quote uh i feel as though we have awakened a, a sleeping giant like whatever like uh probably fake and definitely gay yeah it's like ah you shouldn't have pissed off america and its gigantic war potential what were you thinking you must have been blinded by your racism and militarism and uh not love of democracy and whatever well but it's in like fairness, it was pretty fucking stupid of them to attack i mean well no on. okay so this is this is what i'm getting at because in okay. 1900 uh uh during the uh the russo-japanese war it was roughly the same pattern where Japan, this upstart power, is taking on this gigantic continent-spanning empire. The U.S. and Russia, in terms of their kind of underlying um, geography, size, population, at the time were fairly similar. Obviously, their societies were dramatically different. But from the perspective of Japan... The way that they won that war was by beating the Russian fleet so badly in such a humiliating way that even though in a long-run war of attrition, the Russians probably could have thrown enough conscripts at them and made enough ships and etc. in order to win the battle, it was easier for them to just make this sort of almost token concessions that the Japanese wanted and to get on with running the rest of their empire. And strategically speaking, that was sort of the Japanese mindset going into it. Their demands were fairly limited and reasonable. They weren't going for a uh, sort of long-run war of annihilation. They just wanted their oil supplies back and to have a free hand in their backyard while the U.S. had copious other things to deal with. So Those the, are good points, but I'd say yeah, was also, Russia was pretty me, poor compared to America You know, during those respective... Sure, but I mean, like, Iraq is pretty poor compared to Japan, and still people, like, point, analogize between Adam, these things. Go ahead, Nick. Go ahead, Nick. So, you're right. Not only... I'm, I mean, in, in, from a certain perspective, this is dumb. However, you have to understand 
where the Japanese were coming from at the time. Namely, they believed, contrary to the mainstream historiography, that uh, the United States want, had every intention to get involved in the war or get they involved did. in the Pacific. And they, they well, were made they aware. Did. They were made aware of the United States' plan. They were made aware of this deliberately. This is something the Senate puts forward, that the United States was waiting until they were stretched as thin as they they could be across Asia and South Pacific to then start seizing the Japanese-controlled territories. Mm-hmm. So from the perspective of Japanese, it was time to cripple or to at least delay the United States' ability to operate in the Pacific theater. And now, one of the main mistakes that they made was attacking these useless sh- There were still things at the time that they weren't aware of. I mean, people didn't know at that point that it was going to be aircraft carriers that would be decisive in naval conflicts and not battleships. But what would have right. been the better target that Stan also points out would have been the oil, the oil reserves on the Hawaiian Islands. At, at Pearl Harbor, especially. And speaking of oil, they, I mean, the you know, incipient... Yeah. Uh, Pearl Harbor was then used to resupply and outfit ships that would be, you know, go on to defeat the Japanese Navy at Coral and at Midway. And speaking of oil, I mean, the, the kind of, uh, I mean, honestly, the provocation. Roosevelt had a war policy. He was doing everything possible to try to provoke a war, both with Germany and with Japan. In the Atlantic, the U.S. had been essentially at naval war with uh, Germany uh, since 1940. They had armed merchant vessels. Uh, They were shooting at uh, German ships and vice versa. It was effectively a slow burn. I mean, the U.S. was taking more casualties on a week-by-week basis in the Atlantic than the French were until war was declared and, you know. Then the shit really hit the fan. There's and some things I need to add to that as well. So the idea, like at the time, it also needs to be remembered that Roosevelt campaigned on a platform of peace in 1940. So, <laughs> so did George Bush. <laughs> it's easier, but it's easier to accept nowadays that Roosevelt, especially considering the mythology that was built up after the war, or about you know regarding the good war and you know the great triumph of justice and international jury. You know, the free peoples of the world. Except uh, it wasn't until the 70s that it was made more clear when there was information from the uh, British documents that were released. And the New York Times reported on this, and they had uh, these are reports of uh, Churchill's communications with, with Roosevelt, and you had things such as the president orders the United States Navy escorts were to attack any German U-boat which showed itself even if it were 200 through 100 miles away from the convoy. Everything was done to force an incident. Um, you had he, Roosevelt, obviously was determined that they should come in. If he were to put the issue of peace and war to Congress, they would debate it for months. The president said he would wage war but not declare it and that he would become more and more provocative. If the Germans did not like it, they could attack American forces. So having established that, of course, Roosevelt was, you know, our listeners obviously, you know, Roosevelt wanted, wanted war, most importantly, in Europe. But the fortuitous thing that happened was the signing of the Tripartite Pact, right, which was signed on September 27th of 1940. And so what Stinnett discovered in and writing his book, Day of Deceit, uh, really revolves most importantly around, around let's know, at, at the moment, 
which was, of course, written by Lieutenant Commander Arthur McCollum, who, who was the head of the desk for the Office of Naval Intelligence. He was an interesting guy, too. Apparently, he grew up in Japan, in fact, learning Japanese and Japanese customs before really learning, you know, the American way. Uh, so he was, he probably knew more about Japan than any, uh, any American in a position of, of real power. Now that memo, which I will then, I will read shortly, this is key to the, to the subject here, uh, was, was written, okay, that's 10 days later. So right after the, the tripartite pact was signed, the memo comes 10 days later. So the goal, looking at it from that perspective, is to get into the European in, into the European war, and that could be done by provoking a conflict with Japan. And the memo was is eight steps. Make an arrangement with Britain for the use of British bases in the Pacific, particularly Singapore. Two, make an arrangement with Holland for the use of base facilities and acquisition supplies in the Dutch East Indies. Three, give all possible aid to the Chinese government of Chiang Kai-shek. Four, send a division of long-range heavy cruisers to the Orient, Philippines, or Singapore. Uh, send two divisions of su submarines to the Orient. Keep the main strength of the U.S. fleet now in the Pacific in the vicinity of the Hawaiian Islands. Insist that the Dutch refuse to grant Japanese demands for undue economic concessions, particularly oil, and complete embargo all trade with Japan in collaboration with a similar embargo imposed by the British. And that embargo is really key because that, I mean, given the fact that Japan still to this day relies primarily on imported yep. oil reserves, I mean, this was oh, at a everything, time, not just oil. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I mean, given that they had, you know, iron they had substantial like colonies in, uh, in uh, China and Korea at this time. But yeah, I mean, it, it's a fair enough point. Uh, and given the fact that they are a naval power and especially at the time i mean they were prosecuting an active war in china that depended on naval transport if you decide that you're going to embargo their oil supplies you put them in a position where they are forced to either make war to secure new oil supplies or they just submit and given that they had been fighting in China since like 1931, they're not going to decide, oh yeah, our strategic priorities have completely realigned and we pacifist now and uh, here's all this shit back. So of course they're going to make war. And especially in dealing with the U.S. Diplomacy, because that would be another reason for the Japanese attack from the Japanese perspective, is the U.S. negotiating with the United States is basically agree to everything that we want in advance, and then we'll negotiate with you. Because that was the, basically like the demand. Funny, the funny how this is kind of a continuing they wanted uh, a complete withdrawal policy. from China in order to even sit down. Um. I have a I have a couple points. I'll save the question for you guys uh, for for last, but I think this might be a good time to just give a very brief uh, review of how Japan got to this point. Uh, so when Pearl Harbor uh, happened, if you listen to FDR's address to Congress, uh, he cites Japan as the Empire of Japan. Now, when I was uh, younger, uh, first time I listened to that, that was interesting to me because I didn't realize it was uh, imperial. 
And it really was. It was it was something obviously that we don't have anymore today after, well, obviously the atomic bombs and America taking it over and rewriting their constitution. But actually prior to that, America did play a big role in creating uh, in some ways the uh, the sort of Pearl Harbor event. And I'm not going to you know blame it all on America. I think that's silly. But I think America played a key role in the events that unfolded to lead to Japan's empire. And that was basically when the Americans sent over the trade delegation in 1850 into Tokyo Bay with uh, these black ships by Admiral Perry that had, uh, they were gunboats basically. And they forced Japan to open up. Uh, and prior to that, the uh, shogunate had decided that uh, no Japanese will even leave Japan. They were isolationists to the, the, the core, and they had uh, cut themselves off. And so this is where the samurai culture and everything was really inculcated into everything. And after that, it, it started falling apart. Um, that, that movie with Tom Cruise, The Last Samurai, I think, kind of shows how that was unfolding. But it was in 1850 that America basically forced them with uh, literal gunboat diplomacy to start trading. Um, and so Japan, uh, to its credit, I would say, basically realized that you know, faced against these large, uh, technologically advanced empires, and America was sort of a pseudo-empire at that point, uh, it was delving into that territory, uh, it decided, you know, in order to survive or at least maintain some sovereignty, it has to actually catch up. And so uh, Japan was really the first country in a all of Asia to really become a peer of the West. And they did that basically all, all on their own. I mean, again, we, we they didn't have any resources, and so it was just the decision-making at the top that actually forced through, which was very unpopular, and this is you know why the samurai were rebelling at a, at a period um, in the initial phases of this, but it forced through the westernization and modernization of the country, and in particular, the strategies were to industrialize using a similar mercantilist policy that the British Empire had pursued because they sort of saw Britain as similar to Japan, being an island nation, very small, uh, and also surrounded by water. You can kind of develop a sort of a strong navy and then start trading. So they 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 focused on developing industry. They brought in uh, foreigners to teach them. They sent students abroad uh, to learn. And the, the pace at which they developed in the short course of about 80 years or so until uh, the second world war really was absolutely remarkable i don't think any other country until maybe china today had ever advanced that quickly uh, and so the the first time they defeated a uh, european power was obviously russia uh, and then they proceeded to just you know, wipe the floor with uh, with china which had not really developed uh, to the degree that J japan had they took over taiwan they took over northern china um so it was really remarkable how it happened uh, and then my, my question to you guys was um well i forgot it now <laughs> so well i have a long, i have a statement so go ahead Hank, yeah yeah i mean whenever somebody starts talking to you about western imperialism and how this is some unique innovation of the white man that bespeaks his evil character the empire of japan like japan was a fully imperial power they went and subjugated foreign states in actually a fairly more brutal way than a lot of the european powers did in order to extract their resources and absorb them into their political system and this is something that most uh 
you know, obviously there's not necessarily a whole lot going on upstairs with these people, so they don't feel the need for a certain level of intellectual consistency, but it sort of belies the um, the particularist uh, view of uh, kind of European colonialism as a unique uh, phenomenon, as opposed to just kind of the universal uh, tendency of all states to try to acquire resources at their neighbor's expense. And don't forget, yeah. don't forget, <clears throat> the Ottoman Turkish Empire was still in existence barely over 100 years ago. Right. And the Ottoman Turkish Empire, you're talking about, you know, extracted resources more, you know, in a, in a, a brutal fashion, often more so than Western powers. The, the, the Turks have been extracting resources from that region for several hundred years, essentially, you know, had had been basically stationed there for, I would, you know, roughly 450 years, have been extracting resources, had extracted resources from Europe, had pillaged, you know, a good third of Europe in conflict for centuries, and had extracted resources from North Africa, from the Middle East, uh, from parts of Central Asia, had done, you know, irreparable damage to some of these areas. So the notion that, uh, you know, it, Western imperialism was, was uh, like this unique thing to the 20th century and, and also the decline of Western imperialism as the overall narrative of the 20th century is totally false. Really, the the narrative of the 20th century is that imperialism simply became an American phenomenon and a communist phenomenon, but it also became a much more subtle uh, way of extracting resources and building imperial relations rather than calling yourself an empire somehow, and having, yeah. Uh, the, yeah go ahead the, the liberal mentality can be summed up especially the american liberal mentality can be summed up as it's not imperialism when we do it right. and even these these empires that the united states was dealing with i mean i have a quote from revelo p oliver on this in, in reference to pearl harbor and that is <clears throat> it is Imagine a government act more vile and more depraved than contriving death and suffering for its own people, for the very citizens whom it has, it was extorting, exhorting to loyalty. And I suspect that an act of such infamous and savage treason would have nauseated Angus Khan, Hulagu, or Tamerlane. Oriental barbarians universally reprobated for their insane bloodlust. History, so far as as I recall, does not record that they ever butchered their own women and children to facilitate lying propaganda. Yeah, and actually in support of that, um, and I, I tend to agree that Japanese occupations of uh, Korea and China were, were pretty pretty uh, nasty compared to maybe some other colonialist behavior. But, you know, I mean, the British were nasty to the Indians, so how do you judge that sort of thing? But in defense of the sort of a nuanced look at that sort of thing, and in particular the rape of uh, Nanking, as it's uh, infamously referred to, um, our recent guest, uh, Matthew Raphael Johnson, actually did a pretty good podcast on his uh, network, uh, Radio Albion, about that very topic. And he, he proceeds to kind of debunk a lot of the myths around it. And a lot of he sheds a lot of skepticism on the whole thing because just the, the evidence is very shaky as to the numbers cited in particular. I mean, I'm sure people were killed, of course. I mean, it's, it's a war time and it's an occupation. But... The millions that were sort of claimed is a little bit 
outrageous if you start to think about it. And some of the, the, the claims, like, you know, the, the amount of blood was literally up to their knees. I mean, this is kind of sounding like propaganda. So he goes into that. Um, and I remembered my, my question, by the way. Uh, my question was uh, in regards to Pearl Harbor and what the strategic uh, significance of doing that for Japan, and then, in other words, they had no other choice, Maybe that's true, but I, even prior to you know this this show, I've always kind of wondered. Well, uh, okay, yes, Hitler had just attacked Russia, so maybe Japan is thinking maybe this is their chance. But why provoke America? You know, if if the argument is we need to do this in order to stop America from attacking us in the South uh, East. Uh, Asian sector of our empire, which is where the oil is around Indonesia and, and Singapore and the areas around there. Um, why just not build up your defenses and let America come to you? Because then America looks like the aggressor. Why, so, why well, make them look the, like the victim? The, the, that made, never deep, made any sense to me. There's a deep history to this, and it mostly has to do with the ABCD line that we've kind of touched on and the ongoing sanctions that have been plaguing Japan uh, as well as frequent Western and particularly American um, diplomatic and rhetorical attacks on their imperial yes, holdings in China. Sanctions are going to get only worse if you I attack know, them. But let me, so they let can me, still get oil. I'm yeah, trying to I'm trying to explain the Japanese point of view, and that they didn't that they essentially they feel as though they had been provoked, and this is the only logical outcome. So mm-hmm. you know, by this point, um, there you know, when. Roosevelt visited uh, Pearl Harbor, and actually in 1934, he made this big uproarious entrance there, and he talked about building a great navy and expanding across the Pacific. And the Japanese delegation told him that they found this; they were very apprehensive about these notions. They they found it um, uh, somewhat disturbing, and then they kind of dialed back the rhetoric. But up to this point, you know. Roosevelt had been uh, very blatantly trying to get involved in the war. He had uh, lied to the United States about uh, the Greer and the Kearney, which were these U.S. ships that had been helping the British Navy track German submarines. And then he kind of whined when they came under attack, even though everyone knew what they were doing. He was talking about uh, all these secret Nazi plans to attack South America and to attack the whole planet, to invade North America and all this ridiculous garbage. Um, and the United States public really wasn't buying it. You know, we've talked about this before. It's very easy to find all kinds of polls online showing uh, incredibly low American public support for entering the war. American support before entering World War One was incredibly low. And Americans were, A, undergoing a you know pretty uh, horrible economic depression up to that point. And had seen what had happened to the man that they had sent off in World War One, and basically wanted nothing to do with Europe ever again. Uh, so the United States was very much not interested in the war, but the American establishment was. So you know, Roosevelt up to this point institutes the draft, activates the National Guard, he starts building a two-ocean navy, he starts giving England old destroyers so that he can start setting up naval bases across the Caribbean. Uh, and then at that point, he starts expanding to naval bases uh, in Guam and across uh, the Pacific. And he starts to build up a very obvious presence in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, an obvious military naval presence 
in in this region that the Japanese had been hotly contesting for a long time and had been repeatedly telling the Roosevelt administration would could spark tensions with them because they felt as though it was slowly encroaching towards them. And up to this point, uh, Roosevelt was also obviously planning the the creation. Hold on, the creation of the infamous kind of list of all Japanese Amer- Japanese citizens, Japanese people inside the United States, Japanese Americans, and also Japanese nationals who were in the United States for one reason or another. So, to the mind of the Japanese Empire, there is uh, an attack on ethnic Japanese being plotted there is an encroaching naval presence there's a sanctioned presence they've been building up uh, despite our protests and despite our warnings for over eight years and we're tired of it we're undergoing severe economic problems now we're having difficulties managing the empire they're telling us that we can't have regional hegemony even though we've fought and died for it just the way that the americans fought and died for their own regional hegemony uh the mind of the Japanese, it was very hypocritical, it was elusive, and it seemed uh, almost as though the United States was trying to provoke them. And so the Japanese military felt as though, like as Hank was saying, that they could pull off a similar tactic they had pulled off uh, fighting the Russians about you know 30-odd years prior. And that was essentially strike their fleet repeatedly with small attacks, you know, perform raids, slowly damage their their battle capabilities, slowly damage their transport capabilities, and make them just kind of not want to go through with a vast specific war and, you know, just get your concessions out of them and then move on. That is not exactly... Yeah, let me That's not what happened, but the Japanese really felt as though they had been pushed to this point and they wanted a limited engagement in which they could debilitate the American Navy and make it seem as though the the, the risk and the, the expense was too great and that the American Navy wouldn't bother. That was the intention. The intention was not to, like, slot this invasion so, of America or whatever the boomers believed. The intention was not to wipe out all American people or American troops in Pearl Harbor or in Hawaii. It was very much about trying to uh, launch debilitating strikes against U.S. naval positions in the Pacific Ocean. The, the Japanese didn't even have intentions of trying to occupy the Hawaiian Islands. Right. And to the, the boomer mythology regarding standing in Puget Sound or something like this, uh, first of all, the internment that you mentioned played both coral and mid. So after the Japanese Navy's entire, entire East Eastern Pacific offensive capabilities were totally debilitated, and their their Western Pacific offensive capabilities were very much weakened. After this, the internment took place. And one more thing to keep in mind to Adam's question was: there are there. While it's true Japan was an empire, there were internal political struggles taking place, and the United States provoca- provocations against the Japanese Empire. Were which are, you know, the oil embargo, that is a traditional act of war. Uh, these were things that the hardline militarists really seized total control of this. And so it was that particular faction that had every interest in doing that. And you may throw in there some aspect about, you know, the Japanese saving face, etc. I mean, these were acts of war and the hardline military mind uh, couldn't let this go unanswered.
So to return to the timeline really quick, because I, I want to make a few things clear. Uh, as I mentioned, the McCollum memo was drafted on October the 7th, 1940. One day later, on October the 8th, Admiral James Richardson was brought into FDR, and he argued with FDR and you know protested and said that he would not be complicit in endangering his fleet or the lives of his men, and he was fired. And he replaced by uh, an Admiral Kimmel, and the thing about Admiral Kimmel, and as well as uh, I believe it was uh, Lieutenant General Short. They were giving kind of a short stick in history here because what ends up happening is they take the blame for the events of Pearl Harbor. And it's Stinnett's contention that they were uh, refused key intelligence, that they were kept out of the loop. And it was the ONI officer who I had mentioned earlier who was uh, running the show, basically. And he was filtering the information that they were given. And what Stinnett put forward was really actually vindicated because on uh, in October of the year 2000, when the NDAA was passed, the National Defense Authorization Act, was passed in the great morass of all that bullshit, was a uh, refutation of the findings of the nine previous into Pearl Harbor, in which they were uh, vindicated, ironically, in the in the end. NDAA, these two men were vindicated, and it was shown that they were denied crucial military intelligence. So the people who were in the loop were very small. It was members of the Roosevelt administration and naval intelligence, basically, who were in on this. And I would include probably, of course, Harry, the communist spy, Harry Hopkins, because famously on December 6th, right before the attack, a message was uh, intercepted and brought in to FDR, and it said something effective you know this is a this is a third is a japanese diplomatic message and it was a 13 part message it is to be delivered at 1 p.m to the state department and fdr and hopkins were in the room for this and fdr's reaction was this means war and it needs to be understood that it was a accepted in mainstream history that the diplomatic codes of the japanese were broken uh, but it is also true that the Japanese military codes were broken, which is really the crux of the Basically, uh, over a thousand Japanese military and diplomatic communications were being intercepted per day from January till December. Uh, one funny note, I think, is that George Marshall, similar to uh, George H.W. Bush on uh, November the 22nd, 1963, Marshall, on the evening of December the 6th, 1941 has no idea what he was doing and the next day december 7th the attack he came into work late because he was uh, horseback riding as one does i have uh that was that was good nick um i have a couple of anecdotes and by no means is it as comprehensive of what you just said but just to add to the the um preponderance of evidence to raise eyebrows about the suspiciousness of who was in the know and why were they not acting maybe they intended not to act kind of thing um i have i have this um so apparently according to the great objection i'm reading from my book now but i have a very short passage on this but to the great objection of admiral james richardson uh, fdr ordered the pacific battleship fleet 
from San Pedro, California to Pearl Harbor. Okay, interesting. And then secondly, uh, this is a quote from Harry Stimson, the U.S. Secretary of War. Uh, we were likely to be attacked as soon as next Monday. Uh, how we should maneuver the Japanese into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. I guess that was in response to sort of the movement of the ships. So you can you can go look those up. I, I mean, whether they're true Honestly, or not, I, 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 I think you, it's, it's very suspicious. It's true, but it, it's so irrelevant. Like, so basically everybody who knew what was going on was like, okay, probably we're going to start shooting at each other pretty soon. There's no reason. Like if you go, if you go full retard and you're like, all right, we know specifically the fleet is headed to this location and they're going to start bombing Pearl Harbor specifically at this particular hour and we get notification like n hours ahead it's like all right so but you've already got your war though because they're not going to be like guys i i got a bad feeling about this we gotta we gotta call the whole thing off like the gulf of tonkin incident involved literally nobody shooting at anything that was real no dead americans etc and still there were stories about ah there's there's dead american boys in the water and we got to do something about this like if if there was any specific tactical information that pearl harbor is going to be hit fine if you want your war then like you let that happen but I mean, you still get your war, even if literally every ship is out to sea, and you've packed it with anti-aircraft, and you've got all of your carriers ready to attack the fleet with a complete loadout for a long-range strike, not tactical defense of that fleet. Like in other words, not only if you have tactical awareness of the Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor at a specific date and time, not only do you get a war out of it, but you get to win that war because you get to blow up those ships. Yeah. This is a common... This I. This is commonly raised. Uh, one thing to that fleet, the real yeah, specific fleet, was not at Pearl Harbor. The carriers were not there. And... Uh, as to why it is that he actually needed these ships, you know, a real attack. I mean, the American public was at this time and, and people who mattered were actually hostile to war. It would be more difficult to just make some shit up. Yeah, but point. I mean, you don't need to it make shit up. That- it's like you've got a military installation that was attacked. Like, regardless of the amount of damage that's done, it's like, okay, Japan has effectively declared war on you. There's no way that that results in you not being at war. And because somebody's shooting at you, you get to shoot back. So it's not only like all the carriers happen to be out on various exercises. Like, the, the amount of stuff that was there and, like, the lack of defenses that were there. I mean, some uh, some people that do the whole revisionist bit, they try to make that itself into a conspiracy. Like, oh, they were made into sitting ducks to inflate. But it's not like you don't get a war if there's only a few hundred people that die. If, like, you know, only... It's like, 
if you start shooting, no, then like you, you've got a war. Like that's especially given how sophisticated. In order to mount a successful defense, the actual military commanders need to be given access to intelligence. And the circle, a contention is that the circle was so small. And you also had at the time people in the United States military who were, from the perspective of the traders in the FDR administration, were problematic people, you know, as in they were loyal to their country. So the circle had to be kept small. And, and if you were to let, you know, parts of this leak out, you might cause problems for your your for the traders. If too many people were appraised of a little too much information, people might start to get suspicious as to what else was being held back from them. But that, like, I don't think that makes sense. You can, at any point, you can tell them, we have, you know, I don't even know if you need to be as specific as we, like, surprise, we just cracked the code and we've got a radio intercept or, like, you know, we've got a guy at our Japanese embassy or whatever. But literally at any point, for any reason, you don't have to tell them like FDR has this grand plan to start a war and it looks like it worked and here's how it's going to go down. You can just be like Japanese, like shipping vessel detects Japanese fleet inbound, like telegram, like battle stations, etc. Like this, it, it, because the, like starting a war wasn't just, you know, kind of a, uh, just to have a war this isn't like our modern wars where sometimes you just bomb some shit for the fun of it for domestic purposes like there were actual geostrategic reasons for the u.s to for for the like the u.s political establishment at the time to want to crush japanese power not to just have a war just you know bomb serbia or something because reasons but to try to maintain China as a captive market for the U.S. to avoid uh, the rise of a power that could threaten American uh, naval hegemony. Like, there were a lot of reasons to want to win whatever war you're prospectively starting. And, I mean, okay, so even if you don't believe the tactical... Or even if you believe that the U.S. was willing to let its forces be tactically uh, degraded for no real reason, like concurrently with Pearl Harbor, there were a bunch of attacks on other installations in the Pacific, like down the Malaysian Peninsula, attacking Singapore, uh, attacks on the Dutch East Indies, like all of these things, like say what you will about the uh, the British uh, security services uh, penetration by communists, but they wanted a war desperately and they wanted to win this particular war desperately. If the U.S. had knowledge of what was intended on being done to Singapore, they would not have allowed that to happen either. I mean, this all of this but seems very they, uh, very just did. so. Oh, point. They had. What more do you need? They had the Japanese military codes. I mean, and Mac- interestingly enough, about that, MacArthur he didn't have to fall on his sword, whereas the command at uh, Pearl Harbor did. The same thing happened there. Yeah, I mean, you always need a like a guy to take the blame, and my understanding is that there were kind of some of the old guard of uh, officers that. Uh, 
you know, we're maybe not uh, completely with the program and the attack was a good excuse to clean house. So, I mean, if you've got a guy in mind like MacArthur that you actually want to prosecute the war, of course, you don't fire the guy that you actually want prosecuting the war. You fire, you know, if they had wanted that garrison commander, like the guy who commands the naval base, it's like, what are you substantively in charge of? You're, You're essentially the traffic cop. You make sure that nobody runs into each other on the way in and out you make sure that there's not too many bar fights going on in port. Like your strategic importance is actually very small as like a base commander in that position when there's like an active war going on and combat commanders get what they want more or less. So, you know, if you need a fall guy, then that's just fine as a fall guy. But again, point as to sacrificing anything tactically it what happened at Pearl Harbor especially from the perspective of the US regime of the Roosevelt administration it was effectively nothing of value was lost well but they didn't necessarily know like lives certainly don't matter very much yeah i mean like that's like i'm not one to underestimate the evil of the american regime like the pacific war in particular once it actually got going was tremendously brutal on all sides and there's like ample war atrocities on every side of the pacific uh theater uh, once you start digging into it so i mean i'm not uh sort of hoeing to the line of you know, saintly America attacked for no good reason. It's like they provoked a war that they like hoped would result in a war. They got a war, but there's there's kind of a, a micro thesis that you know Roosevelt was sitting there like watching the Japanese ships like come in on the radar that didn't really exist, like cackling and like clenching his fingers. Like, yes, finally, and I. I that sort of caricature straw man is a uh, straw man is a uh, I I just do not think that that's accurate and supported by evidence or by the interests of the people involved. Like I mean, it's perfectly okay to say like Roosevelt shares the or I mean really shares the moral blame for Pearl Harbor because he started a war without having the balls to actually start a war by shooting at people or by declaring war as we used to do in the olden days. And so instead just created a situation that forced uh, this sort of plan as the most viable option for the Japanese to uh, achieve their objectives. Like, I mean, that's fine. If, uh, if the Roosevelt administration and the Office of NAFIS wanted to mitigate the damage that was done, they would have shared the intel. I mean, we they, can speculate as to why they did not, but we know that they did not do it. They had well, the let's diplomatic let's... and military codes. Yeah, I mean, like, but the, the diplomatic and military codes, like, those don't necessarily tell you like that so the specific tactical extent of which, because they're not communicating when they're on, uh, the, it's not like they're like live pinging GPS coordinates. They had this for several months leading up to it. That means that 
I mean, this is an operation that takes some planning. They intercept plans. They knew specifically that Pearl Harbor was a potential. I mean, it was all. Yeah, I mean, everybody knew it's like it's a military base as you're building up to war. Of course, it's a potential target. Yes, yes, yes. But they had intercepted specific communications, and the the two uh, the two men who were most in the nation, husband Kimmel and Walter Short, were not given this inf- full access to this information. It was being routed through, uh, you know, ONI gatekeeper. Yeah, I mean, there's reasons why you wouldn't want to publicize, like, the specific live radio intercepts. Like, code-breaking ability did actually turn out to be a tremendously strategically important thing. But the question is, like, whether they were intercepting things that would actually give the, like, that specific attack a tactical advantage as opposed to they plan on hitting us eventually and, like, here are some potential targets. Yeah, I think that uh, your admiral in the Pacific uh, stationed in Hawaii should be given access to the Japanese military communications. I mean, but, yeah, but it's I never mean, it's never like just the admiral, right? Like it's sure. it's like the admiral, it's like his staff, it's like that. Yeah, but none of, nobody was told. So why? That's the question. Why are they withholding it? Because you think the, it's just not valid? You think it's okay, not, so like, like you can't trust what your interpretation is? Yeah, I mean, like it's it's somewhat valid to say the ability to break particular Japanese ciphers is something that's so secret that you pre-screen what intelligence is let down to the comic commanders. That that's like okay. a potential thing to do. Okay, that's reasonable, but. I don't think this was broadcast. I mean, you would you would have, you know, I mean, I, I know people who have worked in the Navy, and you have to get classified clearance for certain things. And these people are very psychologically profiled and, and, and cleared for this type of thing. Now, it would seem that the commander for the forward position of your Pacific fleet should probably be in the know for something like that. And I don't know who these people are. I don't, you know, I didn't, I didn't study, you know, the names to that degree, but... Um, if Nick is, if what Nick is saying is that he did not get informed, that seems like a breach of you know national security. There, I mean, it, I mean, obviously, like there were screw ups when you have like that level of surprise when you have like all these bits of evidence that are used to indicate uh, like forewarning. These are all things that indicate like various levels of like not optimal it's a it's kind of actually like the uh, the japanese emperor's line like the war has not necessarily gone to japan's advantage uh like late 1945 uh it's like pearl harbor not necessarily to american uh, advantage at the time but it i don't know like i, I feel like i've conveyed my uh, the main thing is they were being told they were told explicitly to remain on a, a defensive position as opposed to, because there's, I mean, it was coming from all over. There was a Japanese fleet headed, headed, Germans were picking up signals. I mean, people, they were aware of this, but Roosevelt has specific order because he wanted a clear attack to take place. I mean, this, this was, this was the intention that it was something that was, the United States seemed to be, you know, caught off guard and totally did nothing wrong. And this came as a total surprise. 
I mean, there were varying degrees of people knowing that this was coming. I mean, that's a massive diplomatic posture. I mean, it's a war posture towards yeah. Japan. And I mean, uh, hey, that Nick, uh, the I have a question. Policy was, ready. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. So in your reading of this book, I've um, I've always heard, you know, that, oh, you know, the, the, the American Navy was uh, very fortunate or very wise, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, or you know, in the know, uh, to not have the carriers uh, in Pearl Harbor. But um, whose decision was that? And was that something that maybe there's evidence that the Roosevelt administration actually coerced them, or not coerced, but convinced them to do in an, in an extraordinary way that would look unusual for president to sort of say that as maybe evidence that he wanted the battleships to be sacrificed as opposed to the aircraft carriers. Is there any clue that you know, the the presidency was can, actually directing? I can that? answer this question specifically. So basically, what the man, so the aircraft carriers were ordered by uh, it was uh, the naval operations chief uh, uh, Admiral Stark. He ordered Admiral Kimmel to dispatch the aircraft carriers. Uh, um, they were they were sent to. to like wake and midway because in november like mid-november and, and he was admiral mean, one of the 30 some people who were the admiral stark was one of the 30 some people who were in, the, in that circle in the know with respect to the mccollum uh, mccollum memorandum okay okay interesting so only you know like two or three weeks before this took place one of the insider participants ordered one of the outsiders to dispatch the fleet and get them out of uh, Hawaii. Hawaii is an interesting place for the Japanese to target. Obviously, it's the base of uh, a significant portion of the Pacific American American Pacific fleet. So strategically, it's it's obviously key. But uh, it should not go unnoted that the island itself was heavily ethnic Japanese. Uh, which is also very interesting. I don't know if they had any designs and sort of incorporating that into their co-prosperity sphere as they sort of euphemistically called their colonial interests throughout Asia. But the island had been colonized uh, in effect by the Japanese for some time. It was uh, in the 1800s. I can't remember exactly the number, but it was basically uh, Japanese farmers would go over there to work the sugar plantations. And it got to the point yeah, in uh, it's the 1920. One place or, in the territorial United half. States you can get a most burger. Oh yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, I don't know if the Japanese were actually thinking of that as well, and just like that our people are over there. Well, this is where the term colors. Hapa comes from. Yeah, is it Japanese in but, origin? I know. Uh, it's one Hawaiian. more thing I want to add to. I believe or to uh, Hawaiian, Hawaiian and uh, white mixtures, but not 100 percent. On that. The other point I wanted to add, though, was uh, this is another thing that brings up is that on November 22nd is when you had the order for the withdrawal of the, uh, the area where the attack eventually came from. <laughs> so, 
I don't know. I mean, I, Hank points well, out the caricature of FBI. Yeah, like, so, I mean, there, there are, like, technical... transmissions and intercepts. I, I think that it's an actually an accurate caricature. <laughs> I think he was, that, he was that evil. I mean, this is a man who comes back from Yalta saying that he promised no concessions to Joseph Stalin. I mean, right, but that, that's, a like, a lie for political... Yeah, I mean, sure, but, I mean, he was somewhat effective at advancing his... I mean, somewhat effective at advancing his policy aims is, like fucking understates it by a mile he got got exactly what he wanted right but uh, so aspect of right so like the technical to the roosevelt administration the technical issues with the book as far as like what specific dates like intercepts were intercepted on whether like certain intercepts were for from fleets versus installations like to what extent those actually had direction finding associated with them it's an interesting book, and it's like we try to teach the controversy here. Uh, so, you know, people can kind of make up their own minds on that. But, like, a, a cartoonishly evil man still wants to win the war. Like, there, there's not, like... He did! I mean, the these, these same... The Japanese codes were used very effectively to decimate the Japanese fleet at Midway. Right, so you could do the same damn thing at Pearl Harbor if you wanted. But I mean, they did. The, this is what they did. This is how history actually played out. They got the attack that they wanted, and then they got the victory that they wanted. Yeah, and then that they had the makes it seem a little bit more pat, I think, than like the U.S. Navy was on the defensive up until I mean. Midway even was sort of a quasi uh, defensive battle, like strategically defensive, tactically offensive, I guess, I think is how it's uh, caricatured. But like the uh, like it, it wasn't the war in the Pacific was obviously not prosecuted according to some master plan. It was kind of like we we it was almost because there was the whole europe first policy where the u.s focused despite being actually attacked by japan and having you know theoretically a lot more strategic uh reason to contend with japan than to contend with whatever european arrangement ended up coming out of Uh, that theater of the Second World War, the U.S. decided that it was going to focus all of its energies, practically speaking, on Europe. And the Pacific Theater ended up... Wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean? Because, like, yes, we... Well, first of all, we didn't invade Europe until 44. No, we we were there, Operation Torch. 42, reasonably speaking, because it's January 42 when it gets started. But the Doolittle Raid was, you know, conducted. Yeah, but the Doolittle Raid was just like a middle finger. I don't know what you mean by Europe was first. What are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, the strategic priority of the Roosevelt administration was to, uh, like, intervene in the European war by, I mean, don't forget, it wasn't just American soldiers. It was war material. So even yes, though the U.S. was, but come on, I mean, like we were engaged with Japan in the in the ocean. We were engaged, but I'm saying like we were basically yep, on that was the the strategic defensive. That is the point, though, and, the, the whole the the thesis too, the Senate's thesis in particular, is that this isn't about 
Yeah. Right. As far as from a from a real political and military perspective, the United States obviously has in the Pacific, but from the distorted, uh, i.e., Jewish political perspective, the United States' interests lie in Europe, and the motivation. I mean, Stennett's obviously not a revisionist to that extent. He's he's not a, a revision. A revisionist. He is that the main interest. Uh, uh, of the political interest of the Roosevelt administration was in Europe, and the motivations for Pearl Harbor, uh, from his perspective, would be the end into the year. Cut out. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I, I just, yeah. I, let's not forget. You know, the the American military did not actually send men until into Europe until much later. There, there were bombing raids, I believe, but you know, it was not soldiers on the ground until much well, later. Bombing raids had significant casualties for the people involved, okay. and like I mean, and like I mean, so it, just because you're not actually sending somebody over the beach, like there were a lot of American men and materiel, a lot more involved in the European theater, even in you know talking about 1943 or so, like the the amount of. Uh, people and ships and equipment involved in getting convoys across fighting the german u-boats the whole battle of the atlantic the uh the bombing raids like the massive casualties incurred in those bombing raids well i'm sort gonna of pull like, up not not to be you know argumentative i just I, i'm just gonna pull this up because i don't know uh i'd like to know the casualty numbers in the different uh theaters and when so i'll, I'll read those once i find those please go ahead yeah, I mean, and then like Operation Torch, I mean, the U.S. was landing uh, people in North Africa in late 1942. Like the like D-Day was, uh, you know, obviously tremendously important. And that was when kind of the mass ended up uh, landing. But it was preceded by the invasions of Italy, like the the amount of resources. And this this was not just like kind of a empirical thing this was actually roosevelt administration policy to prioritize the european theater it should also be said that it was not a proper against japan it was not a, dec a proper declaration of war roosevelt said was it was a you know a, dec a declaration the joint resolution was declaring that a state of war exists well because that is know, it did not go to well it that's really splitting hairs. I mean, the it's I I like I go back and forth on this, or I, I will seem to go back and forth because like I keep alternately being like, well, it's not that bad, versus like, uh, you know, actually screw these guys. But I mean, it's very ironic that Pearl Harbor has this place in the American mythos as this dastardly deed when uh, literally that is the american operational way of war every conflict uh i guess since vietnam uh, the u.s has started with a massive joint air and sea bombardment with no prior notice or declaration of war or anything other than surprise here's a batch of uh, cruise missiles uh, at every target we can find so i mean like i don't have a uh a necessarily you know 
view on whether surprise attacks in the context of a war are uh, immoral. I guess I would actually view them as not tremendously uh, immoral, um, given that they're basically routine at this point. Um, but it's uh, I, I find it like a, a touching bit of irony that will condemn uh, Pearl Harbor for you know happening. Uh, without their ambassador talking to our ambassador, while at the same time uh, we glorify the notion of shock and awe. So there's a bit of contention about like the the notion of uh, like a Europe first policy versus Japan first. Obviously, there's a lot of people fighting in both theaters. There's ships going down in the Pacific. There's people going down in bombing raids over Europe, also in the Pacific. Uh, the first couple of years, the claim is, according to the numbers I'm looking at, uh, the U.S. had more forces uh, deployed uh, against Japan because, like, your guys are on ships. You cannot get them over to Europe, there's no place for them to go. You don't need just like a giant garrison in Britain. Um, by December 1943, the balance of pure uh, manpower deployment was about even, standing at about uh, 1.8 million uh, men in various uh, capacities apiece, um, and thereafter uh, dramatically shifting towards Europe. That doesn't necessarily tell where your strategic focus is in terms of where the uh, materiel is going. I like to tell the story of Chef Boyardee. He was a real guy. Um, his uh, his name was Boyardee, something like that. Uh, he basically invented the consumer canned pasta market in the United States, and he got a giant medal from Stalin because he sent that much canned macaroni to the USSR. Lend-lease was a thing, and the kind of outright gifts uh, of a lot of the uh, U.S. industrial output to the Soviet Union were a thing. So, I mean, there was a strategic emphasis on Europe that we're going to be kind of strategically defensive for the first part of the war, uh, even if in the case of Midway, we have the opportunity to go on the operational offensive, the priority was how can we stop as much of Europe falling as possible and deploy as much material over to Europe to make a difference. Japan was uh, a P2, a nice to have, even though they're the ones that explicitly attacked us. So that's my interpretation of everything that I've read over the, you know, since I've been interested in this stuff. So yep. people might disagree with kind of uh, points of uh, emphasis of that, but, you know, that's uh, that's what I happen to believe. Okay, that's good. Um, I finally found some numbers. That's really what I was trying to glean on this. And unfortunately, just for the interest of like the speed of the show, I won't go into more research mode because it'll just slow things down. But the best I could do in the time we had was I found um, total casualties by theater and also by time. And so, <clears throat> you know, I think I think Hank and Nick are, are not wrong <clears throat> in saying that there was a strategic emphasis on Europe. But when I heard them say that, 
I was thinking more in terms of just how many people are being killed and it wasn't until much later that they they went to Europe and then when that happened there were a lot of people killed and so I'd like to to break this up even further into like okay was it the air force was it the navy was it the land forces because then you could see clearly okay after D-Day that was a land operation did the numbers significantly spike because if it was a lot more than the air forces were were losing in their campaigns and bombing Germany then you could say well you know maybe it wasn't as big of a deal but it depends on how you qualify it you know for me it's like how many guys are dying and so uh, but that's where i'm coming from hank and nick are not wrong again like there was the strategy in play obviously lend lease was you know a huge thing but here here are the numbers okay so in uh december 1941 i mean that's basically just the start of the u.s entry so it doesn't really amount to much but there were a thousand casualties which i think is wrong i've heard two thousand people were at least in pearl harbor were were uh, hurt but on this timeline, according to uh, IB or ibiblio.org uh, forward slash hyperwar forward slash USA, um, you could find stuff like this. Uh, and then in 1942, they jump up to 40,000. 1943, it jumps up to 73,000. And then the big one, 44, when we're going in on D Day, it's 521,000. Um, and these are casualties. It's not killed in action, it includes wounded in action, all that stuff. Uh, 45, it starts tapering down. You've got 298,000. Uh, and then breaking it down by Europe and Asia, uh, Europe lost a lot more. Um, that was uh, 586,000 total. And then in Pacific, it was 169,000, um, roughly. So there you go. Uh, people can continue to argue about this uh, on their own time, but I think we're probably good for uh, for us folks here at Myth of the 20th Century. So we've had sort of, uh, we've been beset by uh, technical issues all night, and I, I do not envy the task of editing this show. So it seems kind of apropos that we might... Uh, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know what uh, what can what can we take away from this? There's been a lot of uh, contention over the kind of the specifics. Everybody's positions yeah. are pretty clear, um, but regardless of kind of uh, where you come down on the empirical uh, side of this, what uh, what do we what do we want to take away from this? War is super friggin' messy. And the politicians involved are not to be trusted. Um, whether you believe they're just incompetent buffoons or malevolent Machiavellian types that know everything and are pl planning it all out. I mean, those are obviously extremes, but somewhere in the middle is probably what we're dealing with. But it's never as simple as you know, a, a paragraph in your history book, and it's not as uh, lockstep as maybe what you might see in the movies where scene one leads to scene two leads to scene three. I mean, there are millions of people involved. And so picking this stuff apart and really coming to a firm conclusion, frankly, for me, is an enormous task. And I really end up having to defer to people who are in a position to know, as the, the famous historian, you know, would, would say. And it's still hard, you know, but you got to go to primary sources. You got to try to, um, you know, use sort of uh, what is the investigators, you know, motto. It's like, you know, is there a motive, is there opportunity uh, and whatnot, but it's, it's still, you're, you're playing detective here. And so I would just say in summary, just don't trust the, 
the propaganda because there's always an agenda at play and typically it's for uh, for selfish motivations and on, on all sides and so I think once you start with that kind of unfortunately cynical outlook then you can kind of come to a more in my opinion likely uh, understanding of how things work uh, and then just understand what people are motivated to do and then that's probably what they end up doing is how I would summarize it I endorse that. So Stinnett's book didn't come. Stinnett's book didn't come out until the the later part of the 20th century, but <clears throat> shortly after the war, there were still many people questioning what had taken place. Regardless of the exact specific details, many of which did not come out until it filed freedom of information requests. Uh, it was clear that there was effectively treason taking place because the United States was being maneuvered into war that is not in the interest of the United States and is in the interest of uh, an alien people. Now, when Oliver, after the war, he lamented the fact, and this is part of what came to you know, disillusion him with American conservatism, with the fact that there was enough already at that point to indicate that the uh, regime and control of the United States did not have American interests in mind. And initially, he had hoped, and many others had hoped, that not, not much needed to take place before the American people would uh, you know, become aware of this and there would be some form of political revolution and justice would be delivered. Of course, that's not what happened, and the lies and impunity of the successive regimes uh, just became worse, and it became more outrageous what they would what they would do, and the complacency of the American people became even more sheepish. And you know, you get, I mean, Pearl Harbor and 9/11 are always spoken about in the same context because they both provided the casus belli, and they were both uh, acts of treason, and the, in both cases the American people swallowed it all hook, line, and sinker. So the lesson I would take from all of this is that historical, sadly enough, because this is sort of what we fucking do here, uh, historical revisionism really doesn't have a lot of political power on a mass scale. You know, this is all shut out of the academies, and there's really nothing you can do to reach the average person about this affect any any mass politics. It's really something relegated to people on the fringes who actually give a shit what took place in history. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight's guest of honor is from the Empire of Japan. How would you feel if America and Japan were to enter war? The United States is the last country in the world Japan should fight.本日付で私は自分の兵が待つ認知へと向かう。国のため忠義を尽くし、この命を捧げようと決意している。おめでとうございます。召集令状です。ありがとうございます。お国のため精一杯ご奉公してまいります。もはやこの島孤立したも同然
のため我々は最後の一兵になろうとこの島で敵を食いとどめることが責務である生きて再び祖国の血を踏めることなき者と覚悟せよ行きましょう撃てで一日でも長く安泰に暮らせるなら我々がこの島を守る一日には意味があるんです花子この手紙は届くことはないだろうでもお前と赤ん坊のことだけは気がかりだ人として止血すべきだここでこのまま死ぬのと生きて戦い続けることと戦局最後の関東に直面せり残ってるのはライフルだけです今や弾丸付き自れとこしえにお別れ申し上げ諸君らの霊に涙し黙祷を捧げる日が必ず役るであろう世は常に女子の戦闘にある